grab your full page outline that you have in your brochure. Uh, this is going to really help you to kind of follow along. There is some fill in the blanks and just some scripture there. If you want to use your mobile device or a Bible to look up scripture, that's fine too. It's going to be on the screens as well. Um, have you had a good week? It's been a good week, I think, for me. Been busy, but uh, hopefully you've had a good week. And I am ready to learn. Turn to somebody and tell them, I'm ready to learn. Come on, tell them that. Ready to learn. And then pick somebody else and say, and I'm ready to change. Come on. I'm ready to change. Yeah, I, I am too. I'm, I, I feel like I want, I want to experience something new and fresh uh, and what God wants to do in my life, and, and I'm ready to change. So I've been thinking this week, what is it? Is it, is it something that happens... Is it something someone reads or someone hears or someone watches? What makes people aware of Jesus? What, what makes people interested in Jesus? What makes them open to Jesus? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is good about telling us this kind of stuff. He says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the what? Holy Spirit. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit for the last several weeks. This is part eight. I think we're going to have maybe one more week of this, and then we're going to jump to something new in September. But we are looking um, at the Holy Spirit and talking about all that the Holy Spirit does, who he is, what he wants to do in our lives. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings people to this realization, this awareness of Jesus, and whether you realize it or not, the Holy Spirit was working, is working in your life. Even for you to be here today, He's working in your life, drawing you to an interest, to an awareness of Jesus. But also, if you're a follower of Jesus, there's been an initial draw where where the Holy Spirit drew you initially to Jesus, and maybe you began a relationship, maybe you began following Jesus at that point. But even throughout your time in that relationship, it's the Holy Spirit that continues to draw you to want more of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the one that does this. No one can believe, no one can grow in their faith, um, no one can repent and turn to Christ apart from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to work in a person's life or they will never experience Jesus. This is part of a conversation that Jesus had with a Jewish religious leader in John chapter 3. You may know this guy as Nicodemus. Let's take a look at this, and we're going to walk through this conversation that Jesus had. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader. I want you to circle those two words in your outline, religious leader, because we're going to come back to that in a minute. He was a Jewish religious leader who was also a Pharisee. Now, Nicodemus, it says, was a Pharisee and a Jewish religious leader, which meant that he was one of the 70 men chosen for the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council who ran basically the affairs of the nation. If you don't know, the nation of Israel, um, even to this day, continues to be more of a theocracy than a, than a democracy. Um, and so they have a council that runs um, not just the religious affairs, but it's a religious state. So they run pretty much everything when it, has, when it comes to Jewish people anywhere in the world. And it was that, that, that way in Jesus' day and Jesus' time as well. So if there was ever a group called fanatics, religious fanatics, this would be the group, okay? I mean, this, this was it. 
The, the, the Pharisees were an exclusively select group of Jewish men who had taken a vow to devote every moment of every day of their entire lives to obeying the Ten Commandments. Now, I don't know what pops into your mind when you think of the Ten Commandments, but there are a couple of those. I don't know if anybody in this room could quote all ten of them. You might be able to, but we, most of the time we think of one or two. So at, at, at the count of three, I want you to yell out what commandment comes to mind when you think of the Ten Commandments. Ready? One, two, three. That wasn't really yelling. Let's try it again. One, two, three. Okay? So I heard a bunch of things. I heard lying. Shane's got a problem with lying. I heard you lying right there. Okay? What were some other ones that, that, we, that we heard? Somebody else? Murder, yeah, Tony's got a problem with murder, okay, uh, all right, so anyway, the, the, it's interesting that the, there's things that jump out, I'm just kidding, there's things that jump out when we think of the Ten Commandments. These guys were committed to all ten of the Ten Commandments, and they believed that if you didn't keep the Ten Commandments, you could never please God. So the Ten Commandments, though, what's interesting is the Ten Commandments, for the most part, speak in general terms, like one of the commandments is don't covet um, your neighbor's wife or anything that your neighbor owns. So basically, don't have greed. Don't want that. Don't, don't, you know, don't have jealousy for something that somebody else has. Those, it, it's, it's kind of some general terms, but the Pharisees took these so seriously that they felt it was necessary to define how the Ten Commandments were to be applied in any and all situations. So the Pharisees came up with these rules that they had scribes, people who write things down and record things. They came up with these rules that they had scribes record in a book called the Jewish Mishnah, which Jews still have to this day. In fact, you can look it up on Google. It's what I did. In fact, this is a picture I got off of Google from it. Um, it, it it's um, a book that is divided into sections, sections of rules on how to apply the Ten Commandments to everyday life. Now, let me tell you something. <laughs> The Mishnah is very specific, and it's very numerous in the, the guidelines, the rules that they give. Let me give you a couple of for instances here. There's a section on obeying the rule of not working on the Sabbath. Didn't know if you knew that that was one of the Ten Commandments, is you don't work on the Sabbath, right? Okay. In this, the Mishnah, they have 24 chapters on how to um, obey the rule of not working on the Sabbath. 24 chapters. Okay, that's, that's longer than most books that you and I would read. But that's just one section. One section says that any form of labor which a man is engaged in to make his living is forbidden, not permitted, on the Sabbath. And then they get really specific. They say that tying a knot is seen as work, and it is forbidden on the Sabbath. So, a farmer can tether his animals with a rope during the week. A fisherman, in Jesus' time, could tie a knot in his nets through the week, but they could not tie a knot on the Sabbath. So it even gets more specific. Knots that could be tied with one hand were permitted, but not knots that required two hands. Wow. Now that's really getting specific. Now here's another one. Spitting was not permitted on the Sabbath. Sorry, none of you can spit on the Sabbath because spitting in the ground, to the ground, it, it, it falls on the dirt, it makes, uh, combines the water with the dirt, and it makes mortar that they would use in their day. 
And so spitting on the ground was seen as work. All right? But you could spit on a rock because no dirt was involved. So you just got to be targeted in where you spit. You got to look, there's a rock. You know, you got that kind of a thing. Okay? You, you see, I'm sharing these things because I want you to see the absurdity of these rules. They were so specific and so detailed and so overwhelming and so overbearing that it made it difficult, almost impossible, to please God if you had to follow those rules. Besides the Mishnah, the Pharisees compiled another book called the Talmud. <laughs> the Talmud is made up of everyone's religious, uh, religious leaders, all of their opinions and commentaries on the rules of the Mishnah, which were the description of the Ten Commandments. You see how it just falls in sequence here. And so these people were so religiously minded, so serious. It's interesting in the, in the, the Talmud, for instance, there's 156 pages devoted to how the Sabbath applies to life. Meticulous, narrow, rigid interpretations of the law. So, so here's a highly religious Pharisee, ultra-religious, Nicodemus. He was on the top of the Jewish religious system, but it didn't deliver in his life. I mean, Nicodemus was doing his best to obey God, but he had an empty heart. And so in verse 2, we read that after dark one evening, we know why it was after dark, right? He didn't want anybody to know that he was doing this. After dark one evening, clandestine, he came to speak with Jesus. And he says, Rabbi, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. He was probably among the crowd that was mentioned actually in the chapter before that we're looking at in, in chapter John, or John chapter 2 where there was a crowd that had gathered and Jesus did some miracles and it says that people believed in Jesus. Now we don't know what level of believing, but at least they were aware. They were interested. And we believe that Nicodemus was a part of that crowd. And so Nicodemus came with some level of belief or interest in Jesus. And Jesus gets right to the point. Look what he says. I tell you the truth, unless you are, what are those two words? Born again. How many of you have ever heard those words before? Okay. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now Jesus told Nicodemus that he may be very ultra-religious. He said, you know what, Nicodemus, you, you are a highly religious person. But basically, you are wasting your time if you think you can enter the kingdom of God the way you are. You are wasting your time because you are not born again. Now, I don't know where you are in your interest, your following of Jesus in this room. But I want to tell you something. We aren't even close to the religious level that Nicodemus was at. And if Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you can't get to God the way you are, what would Jesus say to us? Good thought. 
Jesus' words shatter every idea of man's attempt to get to God. Any religious duty, religious ceremony, religious ritual, basically Jesus is saying it adds up to zero. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul says the same thing in some letters that he wrote. So what is this saying to us today, though? I want you to get this down, because this is kind of, these, these next two points are going to be the thing that pushes us forward today in our study. I want you to get this down. Here we go. Jesus is saying that being religious will never make me right with God. Being religious will never make me right with God. Religion in any form, to any degree, at any level, is completely useless in making you right with God, in making me right with God. But Jesus also says that being born again is the only way to experience God. Being born again is the only way to experience, being, uh, experience God. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, let's talk about born again. Born again is a phrase that came very popular in church world in years past. Um, you know, we've had celebrities, we've had presidents, we've had others that have said they are born again, born again Christians. They always use that as an adjective, born again Christians. Um, even today, people would say, you must be born again. But the idea of being born again has nothing to do with what a person can do on their own. This is the interesting part of this. That's why Jesus uses this analogy. Jesus wants to demonstrate something that has happened to you. Not, not by you, but to you. New birth is something that is done to us. It's not something that we do on our own. So let's just think about, for just a minute, what contribution did you make to your physical birth? When you were born as a baby, what contribution did you make at all? To that, other than maybe crying when you came out. How many of you would agree that I, I, I would say I made no contribution to being physically born? Anybody else agree with me on that? Yeah, it's, it's true. Think about it. We made no contribution at all. I did nothing. You did nothing to make it happen. Guess what? Birth happens to us, not something we do. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across to us. Spiritual birth happens to us. We experience because it's, it's someone else does something for us. That's the whole point that Jesus is making in this. It's really clear. In John 6, Jesus says, the Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. Hmm. So salvation, that's another word for new birth. That's another word for born again. Salvation is for those who realize they do, they do nothing to experience what only the Holy Spirit can do in their lives. That's what Jesus is telling us. It's an experience that we can't make happen on our own. I mean, look at what Jesus says again. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, you may read um, born again physically like Nicodemus thinks, you know, later on he's thinking physically as well. But in the original Greek, and I've talked to you before about this, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, a little bit of Aramaic, and then translated so that we can understand it in English. In the original Greek, this phrase born again comes from this idea of being born from above. And I want you to write that on your outline somewhere. It's not just born again, it's born from above. So it carries a different idea, a different concept. Jesus says that you need to have, I need to have a birth from above. John says in John 1, to all who believed him, believed Jesus, all who accepted him, Jesus, Jesus gave 
the right to become children of God. They are reborn, born again, get that. They are reborn, not with a physical birth, but a birth that comes from who? God, comes from above. Spiritual birth comes from God, and Jesus says you have to be born again. Everybody follow me on this? Okay. So now Nicodemus follows up with some how questions. This is a conversation. Look what he says. What do you mean? That would be something we would say. What do you mean, born again? What is this? How can an old man, he's old, how can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Now, some think that Nicodemus was being sarcastic with his comments here. Some think that he was joking or mocking Jesus for being this way. But actually, Nicodemus shows that he completely understands what Jesus is talking about. You know why? Because Nicodemus gets to the impossibility of it. He's saying, it's impossible to do this. I mean, a grown man can't crawl back inside his mother's womb and be born again. And so Jesus responds, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Now, sometimes people think that Jesus is kind of trying to tie in the physical with the spiritual again by using this idea of water and the Spirit. Like when a, you know, a mother's water breaks and a baby is physically born, that Jesus is saying that you have to be physically born and then spiritually born. That's not true. Others think that Jesus is referring to water baptism. And many of you know what that's all about, where a person shows that they've stepped into a relationship with Jesus by being baptized in water to show salvation, that they experienced then the work of the Spirit after that. But I don't think that's true either. I think Jesus was connecting the dots, mainly because of who Nicodemus was and, and mainly because of his knowledge and his experience. I think Jesus was taking Nicodemus down a rabbit hole and another line of thought. Let me ask you a question. If Nicodemus was a Jewish religious leader, like I said, and he was a part of the Sanhedrin, he was a Pharisee, he would know the Old Testament, he would know what's called the Law and the Prophets, we call it the Old Testament, he would know this so well. What do you think, what do you think he would know better than anything else? is the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, he had massive sections memorized of Old Testament. He, he had massive sections. He would know this by memory. And so when Jesus is speaking of both water and spirit, I would lay odds on it that Nicodemus would automatically think about a particular Old Testament scripture that goes along these lines. It's found in the prophet Ezekiel. None would be more prevalent to the Jewish people than this passage that we're going to look at in Ezekiel 36 and then Ezekiel 37. God speaks to the prophet Ezekiel about water and spirit being involved in God's saving, restoring work of his people Israel. Take a look. God says, give the people of Israel this message from the Lord. I will sprinkle clean, what? Water on you and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away. You will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart and I will put a new, what? Spirit in you. 
I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and obey my regulations. You will be my people and I will be your God. So in this passage and then in Ezekiel 37, God is talking about making things new. The people of Israel have went through t- terrible times. I mean, they, because of not following God in the way that they should have, they have been pushed to exile. What that is is they've been kicked out of their own land, out of their own homes, out of their own cities, and they have been pushed to other areas living really like peasants, like in poverty because of um, really not following God and not experiencing his blessing. And so God comes back through the prophets and he begins to tell his people, I know what you've done, but I'm going to show grace. I'm going to bring you back and I'm going to make things new. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new spirit. I'm going to give you a new life. In fact, what's interesting is in that passage that we just read, God said that he would do things five times. He said, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, five times. Hmm. What's the people do? Nothing. It's all about God. It's all about what God is doing. This, this, This great Old Testament scripture is called the New Covenant passage. Hmm. I mean, this would have been so familiar to Nicodemus. As a Jewish leader, I mean, that's why they were waiting for the Messiah to come. They were believing that God was going to restore their nation. Even to this day, if you talk to Orthodox Jews, they will tell you they are waiting for God to restore their nation when the Messiah comes. And Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit has already begun that process. You can be born again today. You don't have to wait on it. Wow. So familiar. New life. The new work that God would do among his people. And one of the main points is that if you're going to experience what God is doing, you need a new heart. Hmm. See, I think Jesus was reminding Nicodemus The Old Testament teaches that salvation is a sovereign act of God by grace. It's independent of any action that we would do as a person, that man needs to be washed, that man needs to have his old heart replaced, that he needs the Spirit of God doing this in his life if we are to enter the kingdom of God, if we are to experience God. We need to be born again. We need to be made new. And so Jesus points points to this because... Jesus was all about the new covenant. If you're a follower, you know that phrase, new covenant. I mean, do you remember what Jesus said in the Last Supper when he was gathered with his 12 followers and he took the bread and he took the cup? It's things that we do here in this room sometimes on Sundays called communion. Look at what Jesus said. After supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the what? New covenant Wait, wait, what? New new covenant. Well, what was the old covenant? The Old Testament, the, the Ten Commandments. Jesus says, this now, I'm establishing a new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. 
The Apostle Paul points to this as well. Look what he says in 2 Corinthians. We are confident of all this because of our great trust in God through Christ. It is not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. He has enabled us to be ministers of his new covenant. This is a covenant not written, uh, not of written laws, but of the Spirit. The old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, what's he say? The Spirit gives life. Hmm. Now, isn't it that what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, isn't it interesting how now it finishes off? I mean, he, Jesus is basically saying that nothing spiritually can take place in a person's life without the Holy Spirit. And that's why we've been talking about this today. That the Holy Spirit causes something spiritual to take place in your life and in my life. And look at how Jesus caps off this conversation with Nicodemus in verse 6. Jesus says, humans can reproduce only human life. But the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So the Holy Spirit, he says, gives birth to spiritual life. Don't miss what he's saying here. I want you to get this down. I am not alive spiritually until the Holy Spirit births spiritual life in me. I'm not alive spiritually until the Holy Spirit births spiritual life in me. So what am I saying? Prior to this new birth, this born again, this salvation moment, by the Holy Spirit in your life. Prior to this, Jesus is saying that you are, that I am, spiritually lifeless. And that this life is not gained by me trying harder, by you trying harder, by us trying to live better or be more religious. Even with all of his religion, Nicodemus had not gained spiritual life. That's what Jesus was telling him. Jesus is saying, hey, listen, it's not about religion. It has nothing to do with religion. It's about life. Jesus came to give us life, not religion. The Holy Spirit brings life. And the best part of this is that this spiritual life is available to anyone, to all of us. Later in this same conversation, Jesus says some words to Nicodemus that you may know. It's the most popular verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. Look what Jesus says. This is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal, what's that next word? Life. It doesn't say so that everyone who believes in him will be religious. It says everyone who believes in him will have life. Paul kind of unpacks this a little bit more. I love this in Titus 3. Look what he says. When God revealed his love, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. God washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. <laughs> See, this is something that only the Holy Spirit can do in my life and only the Holy Spirit can do in your life. And so the questions that I want you to ask yourself is, are you becoming more aware of Jesus? Are you becoming more interested in Jesus? If so, 
the Holy Spirit is working in you. Come on up, guys. I want us to end with a song. And it's this new song that we introduced today. Because I think it speaks to this. That we are looking for something like Nicodemus. Maybe you're in this room and you're looking for something. You're looking for something to change in your life. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is the one that causes it. I believe that the breakthrough that you and I are looking for in our life is from what the Holy Spirit can do.